Alrighty. Follow-up questions or thoughts on Psalm. First of all, did we miss any blanks? I think we did. No? We're good with the blanks. Okay. Um, then, if we don't have any blanks, questions beyond the blanks. If not, I got some areas in my notes we didn't go down that I'll be happy to go down further, but I'll open up to you guys. Oh, Naomi. So in Exodus, it said um, that um, when Moses went on the mountain and they hear God speak to them so that they may believe you forever. Um, I was just wondering how that worked with like the parable of Lazarus and how signs and wonders aren't supposed to be what causes people to believe, but rather the Bible. So I was just wondering how that works. And is it different because it's it says believe you forever, as in believing Moses or believing in God, etc.? That is an astute and excellent question, Naomi. I, I, the, the short, to try to deal with your theological question about signs and wonders, um, the Bible insists that signs and wonders ought to create faith. So people can um, be blameworthy because they didn't. So Jesus and John can say, look, if you don't believe me, believe the works I do that my Father's given me to do. Um, now, I agree with you. God's word and God's word alone is the, the instrument he uses to create faith in our hearts. For people who have faith, signs and wonders can be incredibly encouraging. Um, that, that'd be the first time. I mean, these are people who've already exercised faith. They've put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts as they left Egypt. They've already listened to God's prophets speaking his words. They've, they've heard him. They've responded in faith to Moses. Moses is their leader and so I, I would view it less, Exodus 19, I would not think of as the beginning of their faith, but rather the strengthening, the establishing, the, um, you know, that, that type of notion of their faith. There's, there's a sense in which these are already a believing people. They're going to learn a whole lot more about this God who's delivered them, and they're going to have a whole lot more to believe as they exit Sinai, but they arrive at Sinai already a people of some level of faith. God's raised up a deliverer. They received the deliverer, because that's the big difference. The first time Moses tries to deliver them, they tell him to get lost. Who made you a judge over us? The big change is now he shows up, and they accept him. And they, they heed him, and they listen to him, and they, he tells them to get ready to go, and they go. And, and so it's not about creating their faith. These are people with a small, infantile, tiny faith, and God is going to use all of this. And, and their speech as well. They're coming to the mountain, the mountain shaking, but Moses is going to come down with words as well. It's not as though the, the signs and the wonders are abstracted from content. But no, f- fair enough. Fair enough. Does that answer? Okay. Good question. Excellent. See, she pays attention. You remember something I said like months ago and calling me on it. Good job. Yeah. Oh, over on the other time, we're, we're still doing the ping pong. Okay, great. Well, better to be on the far right than in the middle. <laughs> you know, the, prover- the proverb says a man's heart leads him to the right. That's what it says. Yeah. So no, how I'm about just, the inbox? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Verse 8. Well, actually, do you, know what, do you know what the background of that is more? Before the advent of toilet paper, you used one hand, yes. and the other hand was your clean hand. And since most people are right-handed, so the right becomes a picture of cleanliness, rightness, fitness. Left-handed and onto the left is, is a more step down. So that's, that's the background of the right, the right superior to the left. It's, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a prophetic statement about 
21st century politics, it's, it's about which hand you're going to offer somebody. And, you know, um, sorry, go on, Dan. Yeah. I completely forgot what I was going to ask. <laughs> no, verse 8. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. And I've got a, a note that says, a major reason for joy and well-being in the Messianic kingdom will be the perfectly righteous judgments of Christ on the peoples of the world. Yes. Could you expand a little bit more on those judgments during that thousand-year reign? As good as I, it, Sure, sure. So, so the, the timetable, and this, this psalm looks at the judgment and then pictures even here ongoing judgments. Go to Zechariah 14. Um, I'll just go where I'm comfortable in having taught through Zechariah. It's, it's much more in my wheelhouse than other passages. Zechariah 14 pictures both the Lord showing up, the defeat of his foes, and then the institution of a kingdom. Um, we'll go to Zechariah 14. We'll go to Psalm 2. And uh, in Zechariah 14, if you go to Matthew and you go back two books, and the first book's tiny. It's, Zechariah is the first book of size to the left of Matthew. Because um, Malachi, the Italian prophet, Malachi, because Malachi um, is only four chapters long. Okay. Keeping the spirit of Gary alive and well. Okay. Zechariah 14. And so in the first 15 verses, we get this, this battle. I'll just jump at highlights. Um, verse 3, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. And then verse 4 is touchdown. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Verse 6, on that day, and it's a unique day. And then we get verse 9, which sounds similar to the beginning of Psalm 97. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. And then you get this transformation of the land in verses 10 and 11. And then in 12 through uh, 15, you get the defeat of the armies. You get the defeat of the adversaries. And then you get this statement, and we'll read um, the rest of the book. 16 on, you get, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families on earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there'll be no rain on them. And he goes on. So you've got, you've got a situation. And we don't have a ton of information about this time. There still are people groups and nations of a sense. I don't know how established and how, um, because these aren't like technical Hebrew terms for, like when you talk nations, peoples. I mean, I don't know if that means they're going to have kings and rulers or if it's just going to be tribe. I mean, I, I the clarity of to what level of structure or organization, don't know. But they're still distinct peoples. Um, and they're going to go up and it's, it's going to center around Jerusalem and Messiah King is going to reign from David's throne. Like God, God is going to have a street address. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be at a localized place on earth on a localized throne and kingdom rule center. And um, that's what we call the terms of the millennium. Book of Revelation talks about a thousand years before the nations revolt again. And you're going to have perfect justice administered, perfect um, righteous law being given. Um, there won't be religious tolerance. That's one thing there won't be. Um, and I, was, I remember hearing one pastor talk about this thing. Literally, you're going to have like real time law 
Because whatever he speaks is true and right. I mean, you don't have to, there won't be a Congress to get things through. It'll, it'll just be perfect rule, which, go to Psalm 2, is pictured there as well um, in Psalm 2. You're going to have the Messiah, the King, the Son, ruling the nations with a rod of iron, which the book of Revelation picks up not once, not twice, but three times, that rod of iron reference. So Psalm 2, the book of Revelation, in many respects, sees itself as fulfilling, among other things, Psalm 2. It's connected very tightly with Psalm 2. Um, So, um, yeah, if you want the references, by the way, it's Revelation 2, 27, 12, 5, and 19, 15. Are the, the three times book of Revelation picks up rod of iron. But so in Psalm two, you get again this transition. I think it pictures the battle and the establishment of the throne. Um, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, and anointed means what? How would you say anointed in Hebrew? How would you say anointed in Greek? Christ. You got it. Christ is simply taking Christos and not translating it, but transliterating it into English. And Messiah is taking the Hebrew Messiah and transliterating, not translating it. So Messiah is is Hebrew um, for anointed, and Christ is Greek for anointed. It's three ways of saying the same thing. There's no distinction. It's just language shift. Messiah, Christ, anointed are just three different languages for the same thing, which means you can interchange them against the Lord and his Christ, or against the Lord and his Messiah, or against the Lord and his anointed. You're just swapping languages. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. And again, we get this notion it's not a big struggle. (laughs) He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. One of the clarifications we get is the Lord subdues his enemies through the agency of his son. It's, it's the Lord Jesus, particularly, who will subdue and defeat his enemies. So, so Psalm 97 just pictures God showing up, pictures judgment showing up, and different passages of scripture will give us greater clarity. Here we learn it's actually, I love the picture, the Lord's like, it's no big matter of concern, my king will deal with it. I've, what are you going to do, Lord God? All the nations of the world have opposed you. They've made a pact. They've got a new, I've, I've established my king. Ha, you know, he laughs. Then we get the perspective of the king. I'll tell of your decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. That's the language of the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. This, by the way, makes it clear, even though this is a Davidic psalm, this isn't ultimately fulfilled by David. David did never had a kingdom that was of this scope. Work back to global scope. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And you get that there's two responses. There's going to be, when the sun shows up to rule, there's going to be rejoicing with trembling, and there's going to be people getting smashed like potter's vessels, and you want to be, you're invited to be in the former and not the latter group. Um, now, specifically, how that's going to play out day by day, I don't know. Um, they're going to be celebrating the Feast of Booths. Um, 
beyond, I mean, I don't have a ton more detail of what's going to be taking place in there, but I think there are numerous passages that speak that it will happen, um, relatively clearly enough. But um, in 97 is depicting God showing up, defeating his enemies, destroying false religion, and then establishing righteous judgments that are making his people happy. Are you going for anything more than that, Dan? Or is that, that's good? Okay. 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 Steve Sparks. I, I choose to sit in the center. Good man. It's kind of like gender dysphoria. <laughs> kind of. Uh, my understanding is that left comes from the French meaning evil, because left-handers could shake hands with their right and stab you with their stiletto. Are you talking about, like, um, the judge? You've got, what's his name? Pick a side, left versus right tricks. He kills Ehud. Who's the guy who kills Ehud? The left-handed assassin. Ehud kills Eglon. There you go. Sorry. I was backwards. Thank you. Yeah. No, there's, that's biblical. So you've got a left-handed assassin. Ehud sneaks past the, the, the search because he's got a dagger strapped to him for his left hand. Yeah, they, they didn't do that good of a... The TSAs didn't do that good of a job with, with Ehud. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it can be sort of, in every sense, both. Left-handers are considered odd. I mean, and... But there's also the, uh, there's also the, the, the hand. You definitely don't want to shake someone's left hand back in that day. What? That still exists today. If you would get out of Western culture, it still exists. It still exists? Yeah, because yeah, like, toilet paper was invented in like 1547 in New York City. Afghanistan's not there yet. I'm just saying. Dude, Ragbury's Ragbury's not there yet, from what I've heard. Yes. Uh, Ragbury. Okay, it's an acronym. (laughs) We could do what what was it? it, What was Daniel's title? Issues. It was uh, issues with the Psalms, or particular. We do issues, scatological issues. No. Okay. Okay, we won't be doing that. Okay. Good. Okay. Okay, great. The plot thins. Excellent. Great. Con- okay. Confusion. Yes. Um, my question is on verse 7. Mm-hmm. Uh, worship him, all you gods. Yeah. And Young translates that as angels. I assume that we're not talking graven images, false gods that right. can worship God. Um. And I think back, the Egyptian gods were performing miracles, yeah. uh, showing signs. Is it fair to say that these are evil spirits, evil what? angels that have taken the role of gods in our society? And is that a current issue? Okay, yes. Let me, let me back up. I, I think I spent three seconds on this in the message. Let me unpack this further. The Hebrew is gods, but the Hebrew Elohim, God, which is plural, gods, the, the em ending being plural. Now, the reason Young's goes to angels, I think I mentioned this, is that the Greek, a Greek translation, what we call the Septuagint, or Septuagints, uh, translates that as angels. So they understood that the, the Greek translation, the Jews translating this into Greek, understood that as a reference to the angelic beings behind false religion. And so if you go, so there's two possibilities. I actually don't think that's what's going on. It's completely valid and true. To back that up, you go to 1 Corinthians 10. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, I do not imply 
for 1020. I do not imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Because he's he's he doesn't want to speak out of both sides of his lips. In chapter eight, he's like, Look, I can eat in an idol's temple. It's not like an evil building. It's just a building. Now the religious system is evil and it's demonic. And I don't want so he on the one hand makes it clear I can buy meat sacrificed to an idol in an idol's temple. I can go to the back door of the temple of Zeus and buy their discount beef. Totally. It's not like corrupted, evil, demonic beef. I can eat the beef. But you've also got people sharing in the worship of false gods, and he has to warn them in chapter 10, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't participate in false religion. And he clarifies, lest anyone remember what he said in 8, and like, I thought an idol's temple is nothing. He's like, you're right, the, the architecture's nothing. The meat's nothing. The worship, that's something. <laughs> their, their, sac- their, their actual performance of their rites and rituals, the actual pagan worship, they're worshiping demons, right? Um, so behind false religion are, is, are demons. Is, there, there's real powers behind it. That's the way the Greek translators go. That is a, I don't prefer that in Psalm 97. That could be right. That's certainly what the Greek translators take. I think the other option that I'd argue that's also valid. So that it could be that you could be right, and that would be wholly orthodox. Um, the other option would be this is hyperbolic in the same way that rivers aren't going to be clapping and the trees aren't going to be shouting, and in the same way that Dagon symbolically is before the ark with his hands and his head cut off, showing his impotence. Um, it could just be that. Praise him. You, whatever these things are, he's greater than those things. Something like that. Um, and, and I think if you take that as a hyper, poetic hyperbole, hyper, <laughs> hyperbole. Um, I got done a sermon the other day. Someone said, you literally said every word wrong. And I said, if that isn't the epitome of hyperbole, I don't know what is. <laughs> okay, sorry. Sorry. Okay. Okay. I'm just ripping off Brian Regan now. It's really getting bad. Okay. Um, I, I think it's just doing the, the, hyper, the hyperbole, hyperbole thing in the same way that in, in 96 and 98, you've got these hyperbolic statements about the created order praising him and the, the seas roaring and the, the rivers clapping and the hills singing and you gods. But it also, the route you're suggesting would be completely orthodox and entirely possible. I, I wouldn't make it, I wouldn't get out of, I wouldn't fight about it. Um, I wouldn't fight about it at all. But because the whole point is they are worthless and they're nothing. Psalm 96 makes it clear, verse 5. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. So there is no confusion about the relationship of God and the other gods, quote unquote, um, in the Psalms or even in this section of the Psalms. So you've suggested an entirely orthodox and possible reading, what Jung is doing following the Greek. I think it's also possible to take it purely hyperbole um, and not as if he's validating there are real gods, but either, either way. Good question. You guys have got good questions this morning. I've got terrible jokes, and you guys have good questions. Wanda. <laughs> well, when you took us to Psalm 2, it's something I've always wondered about. Um, in verse 12, where his wrath, for his wrath is quickly kindled, but elsewhere in the Psalms it always says he's long-suffering. So I get confused. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Well, the, the short answer would be, in certain contexts, his wrath is quickly kindled, and in many contexts, his 
anger is slow. Um, there are certain things that, that we can do to provoke him that he's going to act more swiftly on than others. Um, and I think that's true with us, too. There are certain things in my home, if any of my kids try to hit my wife, I am not long-suffering. I am not... I remember one of our kids tried to swat her once, and, and it wasn't like, well, I am just going to see what happens. I, I got involved quickly. And God is the same way. In general, by and large, what is normal? He is slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Absolutely, that is true, and I almost default to that. But here is this king being established, and God says, you're my king, and the rest of the nations are like, we don't like that, and we'll fight you over it. God's not going to say, well, let's give you a couple hundred years to think about that and change your mind. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll break you. Like that, That's the response. The context is a global conspiracy of nations to resist God's Messiah king, and in that context, you aren't going to have much time, guys, so you're going to want to bow the knee and you're, you're going to want to change sides, and you're going to want to recant and repent and, and not fight him, because he'll break you. That, that, that's the context of Psalm 2. It's this advice to nations considering fighting the Lord's Messiah, whom he's enthroned. This would be something the equivalent of, like, the sign of the Son of Man is in the air, and he comes, and the nations go. Like, guys, you got seconds to change teams. You would do well to do that. He, there's not going to be a lot of time there. Um, so, no, a great question. And by and large, in general, God is incredibly slow to wrath and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There are examples biblically, like with Ananias and Sapphira. You know what? I'm going to make a point. I'm going to make an example of you. And Ananias and Sapphira, I mean, if God killed people for taking false religious credit, I'd be dead a number of times. And so, for us, in that regard, he seems to be very long-suffering. With them, and I think it tends to, I think my guess would be because he's starting the program of the church, you get at the beginning of these programs examples. So at the beginning of the conquest of Canaan, you get Achan and his family getting stoned to death because they took spoils from Jericho, right? And they hid it in their tent. That's a pretty big, hey guys, I'm serious. When the same thing happens when the church starts and somebody's got to sell something and take some credit and, no, I'm serious. But I'd be dead if I, I mean, just anytime someone's like, thank you for praying for me, and I haven't really been praying for them, and I don't correct them. I'm taking credit, spiritual credit, for something that's not mine, right? Or you say, I'll pray for you, and you don't, or whatever, you know. Anyth- I'd be struck dead. I let them think that I was more righteous than I am. They want people to think that they gave all the money, you know, for, for the selling of their land. And yet there are examples where, no, God makes a point. Uzzah touches the ark, is supposed to fall off and zap. I mean, so there are examples of immediate judgment. They tend to be the exception, not the rule. So God can say, it's normally my character to be slow, patient. There, there are exceptions to that principle. Great, great question as well. Anybody else? How do we find a balance? It seems like in this psalm, maybe there's a little bit of pride in God's exalted, powerful nature uh, where he will conquer, where he will be exalted. Um, and we see that some in other places in Scripture. But then we see Jesus standing over Jerusalem where they were uh, mm. you know, false and, and they were attacking him and he cries and he weeps and he says, oh, Jerusalem, if you would repent, you know, I, I would gather you. And so... It's hard, I feel like, in, in my 
pride, I think probably mm. my nature would be more to, well, they'll, they'll bow a knee sooner or later, you know, right. kind of more like what we would see in this psalm maybe, or what we'd like to take away from this psalm. But we do see Jesus just completely humbled and, yeah. and broken over the, the waywardness of, of Jerusalem. That's, that's, wow, you guys are on fire this morning. That's perfect because that is the rationale, the way the Bible expects us to think, the way we're encouraged to, to do the math, because the ending is sure, th- there's no use praying for it. It'd be wrong to pray for an alteration for the end of the story. The end of the story is set. And there's going to be a dividing line. There's going to be sheep and there's going to be goats. There's going to be unquenchable fire and there's going to be a people who are redeemed. That, that's it. And then we're told, because of that, a bunch of things. Be willing to suffer and be mistreated, because you know justice will reign in the end. So the first point would be something like, so give the man who asked for your cloak your cloak, and go two miles with the one who asked you, and the one who strikes you in the cheek. Why? Because God's going to show up, and he's going to set everything straight, so you can be mistreated right now. You know, as opposed to the proud, my side's going to win, so I hate. No, go suffer and love your enemy. The next would be the thing that should be driving us onto the mission field is we don't know how much longer he's going to tarry. And we know what's going to happen to all worshipers of false gods. So while he is tarrying, while his, his wrath is held back, while there is time, we need to get out there and call on people. to like That is the, the rationale of how that truth should, should uh, rather than creating a Jonah attitude in us, like God's going to whack you and I'm going to get a good seat to watch it. <laughs> Right? No, because that's the whole rebuke of Jonah. Jonah's like, let me get my popcorn out in my easy chair and watch this thing. This is going to be good. And God has to fix his wagon. No. Um, God's not a sadist. He delights in righteousness. I mean, and this, this is also part of the balance, too, because Ezekiel talks about God does not delight in the death of the wicked. But there's something to be delighted in here. And, and we, with our fallen hearts, have a very hard time distinguishing, I am rejoicing that justice is being done. I am rejoicing that what is right is being done. I am rejoicing that wrong is being righted. And the I'm taking personal pleasure because I'm on the good side watching my enemies get crushed beneath my feet, right? Which is the part Jonah has to like, no, Jonah. Um, So we have a very hard time separating in our own hearts that. So I think it's good for us to be distrustful of any... I mean, if I met somebody who's like, I can't wait for the nations to be judged, there's a sense in which that's a biblical theme. I would be very suspicious of the person who that's like their leading line. You know, like, hi, my name is Bob, and I can't wait for God to crush the nations under his foot. Like, hmm. (laughs) Just because of my distrust of the human... Even though that is absolutely a biblical theme that person has expressed. It's conceivable. They've got it balanced, and they got it right. But... Because of the, the corruption of our hearts, I think we're right to be distrustful that our motives are as righteous as that. I, I had some uh, Jehovah Witnesses come to my front door um, on Saturday. And we said, no, I started talking to them until like their leader came and got them. Um, There's a lady in the car who had to come and get them. Yeah. Um, and they were talking about hell. She's the shepherd. Okay. Well, anyway, we're talking about hell. And one of the things I was just saying is like, no, I I get that emotionally and cognitively we wrestle with God's wrath. And I think that's right. We can rest assured. And one of the things I'd point out from the psalm is when it happens and when we see and when the world sees, there'll be no confusion. Everybody watching will say, yeah, that's appropriate. That's, That's right. 
That's, that's fitting. That's, that's correct. Um, but I, I'd say the, the way to regard, I mean, the applications hate evil. The first thing would be, if this is what God does to his enemies, don't be his enemy. Don't play around with being his enemy. Don't, um, don't flirt with being his enemy. I mean, that, that's, I take the application. Where's the psalm press me to? The, the application's in 10, 11, and 12. Oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. Don't, don't spend your days thinking about how God's going to smash your enemies. Think about, do I have any evil on me I need to get off? If that's what God does to his enemies. <laughs> um, the second is suffer. He preserves the lives of the saints. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked, which is the logic is keep on enduring, guys. You, you see the wicked triumphing right now. Hope and trust. Don't get angry at your enemy. Don't, don't repay evil for evil. Trust vengeance will be God's. And then have a joy and a rejoicing heart because God will write things. That's, um, in fact, go to, go to First Peter. That's the current, that's, that's where these truths get fleshed out in a, I mean, Jonah is the wrong application. The wrong conclusions to make from these truths would be Jonah, which is the cultural superiority, my time, my side wins, ha ha, I'm going to enjoy watching you get smashed, right? That, that's, we've got an example in the Bible, like that's not the conclusion to draw. Because God wants and he invites all people to, to rejoice. This psalm opens with everybody is welcome to come and rejoice in God's rule. Everyone's welcome. If you would have God rule, you may. Like you can, you can, you can, if you will, if you will celebrate and rejoice his rule, you're going to be fine. You're going to be good. Um, a lot of people won't. But then the, the rationale for suffering is this exact same rationale because of God's coming judgment, we can be free to be mistreated and suffer because the part of us that says that's not right, this needs to be balanced, can be confident, but it will be balanced. It's, so it's okay. So um, pick it up in First Peter 2, uh, 20, no, 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Which is to say, his suffering of all suffering was innocent. There's a sense in which your and my suffering is never innocent like that. We, we may not deserve the particular thing that's happening to us because we may be, in a particular instance, innocent. But we're guilty people. You know, um, Even though I may not deserve this person being mad at me for this particular thing that they're wrong about, in general, I, I don't deserve good things in my own sin. So Jesus is the one true innocent victim in that sense. Um, he committed no sin. This is a Jewish way of arguing from the, from the greater to the lesser. Um, he committed no sin, so we establish his superiority as innocent, far more than you and I will ever be innocent, and then we'll establish his superiority, the, the extreme to which he endured, without cursing or getting angry under his breath or posting nasty things on Facebook. When he was reviled, he found the best memes. And, no, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten. Which gets back to, my dad's going to fix your wagon. You just wait till he doesn't do that. 
But the reason he doesn't do that, you're going to see, what does he do? He didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So it was Jesus' confidence that his father would judge, which enabled him not to threaten now. That's the way I think we're supposed to process the data, so that because I'm confident the Lord will balance the scales, because I'm confident the unrepentant wicked will perish, I can live with the unrepentant wicked mistreating me without cursing under my breath, without getting angry at them. And I can love them and pour out my life to try to win them because I'm confident this, this will be made right in the end. Um, that, it's a huge topic, but that would be the short treatment is don't, Jonah's the bad example of what to do with this. How should I interpret it? What should I do with this? You, sh- you should do what Jesus did with this. And because of Jesus' confidence in his father's justice, he was willing to suffer ultimate mistreatment, ultimate victimization, ultimate um, wrong. And then we're called to follow after him. And so I would say our, the same confidence in final judgment enables me to say when I cry out, that's not right. That's Okay, so it's not right. Fine. Do, can you trust, can you too trust God? and his timetable to vindicate and make things right. Okay, then. We're at time. Um, It's good to be back. I will uh, see you all, same bat time, same bat channel, next week, God willing.